welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this installment of the People, Places, Planet miniseries, celebrating the winners of the 2023 National Wetlands Awards. My name is Georgia Ray, and I'm your host. The National Wetlands Awards are presented annually to individuals who have excelled in wetlands protection, restoration, and education. Through coordinated media outreach, educational events, and an awards ceremony in Washington, D.C., awardees receive national recognition and attention for their outstanding efforts. Today, I will be speaking with Adam Davis, this year's Business Leadership Award winner. Adam Davis is the co-founder and managing partner of Ecosystem Investment Partners. Over the past two decades, his thought leadership has increased private capital available for large-scale, multi-benefit wetland restoration projects nationally. Adam was at the forefront of championing wetland mitigation banking, serving on the board of the National Mitigation Banking Association for 10 years, where he led the group's transition to become the Ecological Restoration Business Association. He played a singular role in convincing the state of California of the part the private sector could play in restoration projects, leading to California's largest attempted wetland restoration, Lookout Slough. Furthermore, he was instrumental in encouraging pension investors, one of the most conservative of investment sectors, to see wetland and ecological restoration as a safe investment. He also supports the burgeoning efforts of the Ecological Workforce Initiative and acts as a bridge and friend between the growing private sector presence in conservation and long-standing NGO voices. Adam has a BA in Africana Studies from Cornell University. He has served on the board of the National Industry Trade Association, the Ecological Restoration Business Association, and helped to create the new California affiliate of that same Ecological Restoration Business Association. So Adam, thank you for joining me today. You're very welcome. Nice to be here. I'd love to get us started with just a snapshot of your wetlands work in general. What does that look like? So I'm a managing partner with a company called Ecosystem Investment Partners, and we do ecological restoration projects around the United States. We were founded in 2007, and over the past 15 years, we've done something like 48,000 acres of completed wetland restoration and some 220 miles of stream restoration in 10 states. Those are definitely some impressive numbers. What inspired you to get involved with this kind of wetlands work in the first place? Well, I started my career on large-scale municipal recycling programs, and in that recycling business became really a student of economic incentives for environmental outcomes. And along the way, I had the great good fortune of meeting a person named Gretchen Daly, who is a professor at Stanford University, and one of the really leading national proponents of ecosystem services theory, right? The financial value of natural systems uh, for what they do, not for what we can take from them, but what they actually do as healthy systems. But the real question for me as a person involved in the business world was, how do we make that theory into practice? How do we get people actually to be able to make a living through the recognition of the value of natural systems. 
I'm really interested in this area you're getting into of the economic value of these ecosystems and what you just mentioned, making a living doing this kind of work. I think a lot of people have this conception of working in the environmental space or the wetland space more specifically as kind of this thankless job, not payless, but at least low paying. So how do you make those two elements of this work work together? You know, you have the economic side and the natural resources side, it seems like your work is really unique in bridging that gap. How do you approach these issues differently from those with other backgrounds or focus areas? So ecological economics and other theoretical valuation methods had recognized for a long time that the functions of natural systems are incredibly valuable, right? There's been lots and lots of academic work on it. But if you look at wetland restoration as a profession, the money has basically come from one of two places, either nonprofit organizations that raised money through philanthropic donations or from government grants that had been increasingly recognizing the need for wetland protection and restoration since around the 1970s. But everyone agrees on all sides of the coin that the amount of money that exists for restoration is not sufficient for the task. In other words, there's so much more restoration that needs to be done than philanthropic and government sources can afford to pay for. So I got involved in it really from the side of trying to figure out uh, how to bring more capital, more resources to wetland restoration by building on this theoretical notion of the value, but looking for practical places where doing restoration was actually financially valuable in that instance. And of course, mitigation banking under the Clean Water Act was the most obvious place to look. Can you tell me a little more about the importance of integrating privatized solutions for wetland conservation and restoration? Sure. Uh, it's It's a topic I like to talk about because I think people have a pretty specific notion of what privatization looks like. And our industry is actually not very much like that idea. So it's true that we're a private company that manages committed capital for investment in real estate design, permitting, and construction of wetland restoration projects. But it it is important to remember that many of our investors are public pensions that actually represent teachers, firefighters, and so on, and that private equity structures like the one that our company uses are actually essential to public pensions because they provide returns that balance out stocks and bonds and the other things that are held in those public pensions. Also, the rules that we work under are entirely set by public agencies. So the targets, the goals of restoration, and the priorities and standards are set by public agencies. And then finally, most of our customers or many of our customers are public agencies. So the largest single buyer of mitigation credits in the United States is public departments of transportation. So we're entirely a creature of public sector priorities. We just try to add efficiency and timeliness to the delivery of projects in really what amounts to a public-private partnership. And for those listeners that might not know, we have certain designations under the National Wetlands Award categories, and Adam is our Business Leadership Award winner this year, which you might have guessed at if you did know those categories based on these answers. And you just you know, touched on it, and you've also talked about it in the past, the importance of investment capital in this space. So why is that so important? 
Well, investment capital is necessary, again, to make that theoretical value of nature real, right? So that real people in real places can actually get paid for scientifically verifiable improvement to the health of wetlands. The notion is that a fair rate of return on investment can be realized by restoring wetland health through compensatory mitigation as the primary driver, right? So under the Clean Water Act, you cannot get a permit that would damage a wetland or a stream unless you can demonstrate that you're going to permanently protect and restore an equivalent amount or more of wetland in that same watershed. So that fundamental notion is the driver for demand from private companies and public agencies that have projects that have unavoidable impacts to wetlands. So as many people listening to this podcast will know, the structure of that regulation, the mitigation banking rule, requires avoidance and minimization. And the Army Corps and the EPA that oversee this regulation are serious about examining permit applications to see if avoidance and minimization have occurred. But for things like highway widenings, energy projects, including renewable energy projects, but all kinds of infrastructure, housing development, and so on, there are lots of unavoidable impacts. And so the regulation and the rules require this compensatory mitigation. Back in the beginning of the mitigation banking program in the 1980s and 1990s, every permit applicant was trying to do their own restoration, but it quickly became clear that this was a complicated and expensive, unwieldy process for every permit application to go find their own small project to make up for the impacts that they had. So fairly early on in the development of the Clean Water Act, private entities began to assemble restorable land through real estate control, either buying the land or placing permanent conservation easements on that land, and then doing restoration projects that earned government recognition in the form of credits. So you can think of a credit as an acre that's been restored. And once land had been restored to a government standard, then it was eligible to offset the impacts from unavoidable development. Does that all make sense? Yeah. So to think about it really simply, the idea behind this compensatory mitigation process is I'm building a renewable project, widening a highway, and I'm going to destroy five acres of wetlands. So I need to go buy these credits to make up for that and protect wetlands somewhere else. It has to be done in the watershed. And that's a critical piece of all this. It wouldn't make sense to allow impacts to be offset in places where the net benefit to the watershed wasn't helped. There are roughly 2,600 major watersheds in the U.S., and each one essentially is its own regulatory arena for this type of activity. And a lot of the early critique of mitigation banking was that it wasn't strategically located on the landscape as part of watershed planning and more thoughtful consideration of ecological function in the watershed. So by doing ecological restoration at scale, it not only improves the ecological effectiveness, the landscape corridors, connectivity, and so on that come with larger projects, but it also reduces the cost per acre. 
And so that notion of spreading the fixed costs of a project over larger and larger landscapes is good both for the ecology and the economy. Yes, that's such an important clarification, and I'm glad you made it. And also interesting to see how it's kind of grown up as the business side of things has grown to be more effective. It also leads in well, I think, to my next question, which is, these are local projects, but they're also projects you've been involved in across the country, from California to Maryland to Minnesota. I was watching a video from your organization. It says 53 projects across the country. So how do you balance this national approach with these efforts that do have to be pretty localized to different community inputs and priorities? And is there a universal truth to investing in wetlands, no matter the location? No, it's a great question. And partnerships are really central to how we were organized from the beginning, because it's clearly true, as you say, that all ecology is local and so is all community. There's a lot of local decision making and local control of land use decisions across the country. And so having local partners who are tied into not only ecological and hydrological science, but native seed banks, native nurseries, revegetation capability, and trusted relationships with the regulatory community are all very localized. So we basically take our capital for investment along with the skill sets of the folks on our team and the lessons learned from having done these projects for many years to bring a sort of, I would say, pattern recognition to the local community where we understand the basic object lessons and principles of good design and implementation. But then we work with local folks on every aspect of design, permitting, real estate, construction, long-term monitoring and maintenance and so on. And is there a universal truth? <laughs> well, that's, that's a fabulous question. To the extent that there's a universal truth, I would say that it's simply that the health of wetlands is incredibly valuable and that wetlands, like other natural systems, are systematically undervalued. Well, that is spoken like a true business leadership National Wetlands Award winner. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today and congratulations on the award. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.